0: So you guys ready for the word this morning? Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, we thank you as we spend time looking into your word that we can get to know you better. Lord, that we can have a revelation of who you are, and we just want to grow. We want to become closer to you. We want to know you more and more. And I thank you that as we read your word and we study your word, that's what's happening. So this morning, Father, I pray that your word would have its way in us. Lord, that it would accomplish what you intended to accomplish inside each and every one of us, and that we would not leave here the same way that we came in, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're going to go ahead and continue on in the series that we're going through the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to make it through chapter 6, verse 13, and we're going to get all the way to chapter 7, verse 10. And the verses that preceded this, that Pastor Joseph ministered on last week, um, was actually, if you recall the writer accusing the Hebrew church of immaturity. He was saying, hey, you guys should be looking for some solid food, but you're on milk, and they, they were having an issue of immaturity, spiritual immaturity in the church. But he also didn't want these readers to be completely exasperated by what was being said. You know, there's this. There's probably the possibility if he was coming out and saying, you guys are, are, are not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're you're, you're needing the elementary stuff again instead of uh, further spiritual truths." He didn't want them to be afraid that even though that was happening, that maybe they were somehow uh, uh, at risk of losing their salvation or something like that. But instead, the good news is, even if we're not walking the way we should be walking, we're not growing as fast as we should be growing, that God still loves us and we're not at risk of, of of a loss of salvation. Matter of fact, we still have an assurance of salvation. And this is how he ended in in verses 9 through 12, Hebrews 6, 9 through 12, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness To have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The point is, is that even though we should be growing, if we're not making the spiritual progress that we should be, we don't have to have a fear of being condemned or somehow being left out. And this is an interesting dichotomy if you think about it, because on the one hand, remaining a spiritual baby has consequences. You can think about that in, in, in our regular life. If you, a, if you had a two-year-old that never stopped acting like a two-year-old, how many know one that's going to annoy the people around <laughs> that person, but two, that person is going to have consequences in their life. They're not going to be able to live to the, the fullness that they should have as an adult as they should be growing up. Nobody wants to be an adult and still need somebody to wipe their butt for them, amen? amen. You're going to have some consequences if you don't grow up. And for the, for the Christian, remaining a spiritual baby is, is you're going to have things that are going to negatively impact your Christian walk and your faith. However, it doesn't exclude you from being saved. While it's not a good place to be, it doesn't mean you're going to get kicked out. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. But more so, it impacts the realities of the promises of God on your life. And as we live on this earth, when we're stuck in certain ways, we actually limit God's ability to, to have an impact in our life. So through the end of chapter six, we're actually going to see some powerful reasons, though, that we can be certain of our salvation as believers. The truth is, is that your salvation is based on your faith in Christ and God's promise, not on how you perform. How many know that's a good thing? Because there are certainly times in my life that I needed to grow up, and there are still certain areas in my life that I still need to grow up, amen? So let's go ahead. And the first verse we're going to look at is uh, Hebrews 6, 13 through 15. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the first thing that we can do to be assured of, of our uh, our salvation to be certain of our salvation is it's god's promise in hebrews 6 11 through 12 you remember that we just read it a second ago the author desired that we would have that full assurance of hope until the end so he begins to give abraham as an example of somebody that we should imitate as well as a demonstration of god's faithfulness when he promises something how many know that when god promises something you can count on that promise When God promises something, it's going to be done. There's no ifs, ends, or buts. God can't lie. When you promise something, you're going to get what he promised. Not only is this just a reality, a fundamental truth about when God speaks, God, in this case, even swore by himself. And that's interesting, too, because it says here that... uh, he had no one greater by whom to swear, but so he swore by himself. How many know that if you and I were to take up a contract, if we were to write up a legal contract um, and come to an agreement, if you were to break your end of the contract, I, would have, I, I personally don't really have the authority to do anything about that. I really don't have the ability to do anything about that. I can point my finger at you and wag my finger at you and be upset. But the, the reality is, is that I don't really have any authority to make you do anything, even if you did sign your name on the dotted line. But the legal system in this country does. So when we come together and we sign a contract, we're actually both submitting to a higher authority and agreeing to come underneath that. So when we sign that contract, we make that agreement. We're actually coming underneath the legal system. So if you do break that contract or if I break that contract, we have some other recourse to make sure that it's taken care of. I can't make you do anything, but our legal system, the the courts, the government we have in place can. And when we sign that contract, we agree to come underneath that. So in this case, though, there's nothing God can come under the authority of. When you are the highest authority, you can't come under the authority of anything else. So he's swearing by himself, the highest authority there is, the promise that he made. And the promise that he made is surely that I will bless you and multiply you. And this is the promise that he made to Abraham. And as you know, the story of Abraham He had to wait quite a few years for that promise to come to fruition. Matter of fact, partway through the story, you know, he tried to do it himself. I would encourage you not to try to answer God's promises yourself. You will get yourself in trouble. Matter of fact, the the whole world is still feeling the effect of Abraham trying to help God making that promise to this day. But we do see that Abraham did wait patiently. And when he waited, he obtained the promise that God made. Now, this is a tough one here in the United States because we're not very good at patience. (laughs) Not good at all. The thing is, is we want it all and we want it now. Matter of fact, sometimes now is too late. We wanted it yesterday. Patience is not something Americans do very well. And our biggest problem is, is sometimes I think that we think that God's not answering our prayers because we prayed something and it didn't happen 3.62 seconds later. And I know I'm guilty of this in my own life. And I have to remember that it's not just with faith we receive the promise, but faith and patience that we receive the promise. And that's the thing that the author's trying to demonstrate here is that, that look, Abraham was patient and he received the promise because God made the promise. He swore by himself and it was going to happen. But the interesting thing about this verse is actually the whole point is not even about uh, Abraham and his patience. The whole point is about God's faithfulness. You see, what the author is trying to make the point on is if God promised it, you will receive it. The point he's trying to make is is that if God promised it, you can go ahead and be patient without concern. We actually have the, that we should have the the assurance of our patience that something is going to come out of it. That's the importance here. So when we're talking about having this full assurance of hope to the end, the first thing is God promised it. We don't have to worry about our salvation because God promised that he would save us. And he did so through his son. And then in verse 16, he goes on. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible Forgot to lie, we, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So not only did God make a promise to Abraham, we also see here that he confirmed this promise with an oath. And that's the second reason we can have full assurance of our hope to the end. First, God promised it, and then he confirms that promise with an oath. Verse 16 up here describes how oaths work in human affairs. This is where people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. In human affairs, if you make an oath, that oath is binding. And this practice is actually carried on into present day. It's one of the few things that when we look at the Bible, we can all understand it culturally because we still have the very same practice. We make oaths all the time. And if you make an oath, then It's binding. If you're going to go and give your testimony in a court of law, how many know that they have you stand in front and you make an oath that you're going to tell the truth and nothing but the whole truth? And I think in most places, you're still putting your hand on a Bible, and so help me God. When you get married, you say your vows. Your vows are just oaths that you're making to one another. And they're binding. At least they should be. And actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you give an oath in a court of law, it can be legally binding. And what I mean by that, not, not when I say in a court of law, I don't mean you give your oath in the court. I mean if you give your oath outside of the court, in a court of law, that can be binding as well. You can, there, there's still a such thing as verbal contracts. Your, your oath means something. Your word means something. And here it says that if you have that oath, it's final for Confirmation. So God made the promise, and then he confirmed it with an oath. How many know that at this point, it's pretty solid? He doesn't even need to make the promise with the oath. If he just said it, he can't lie, so we know it's true. But now we're getting more and more things to confirm to us, to give us that full assurance. Matter of fact, it says that we should have a strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope. But God actually went, went, went further when he swore, he swore on himself and then he, then he came with the oath. This actually is not just to convince Abraham, but also to convince the heirs of Abraham. Because we're heirs of the promise. That's referring to us. Galatians 3.29 says that all believers are heirs of the promise of Abraham. In 3.29, Galatians 3.29 says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And what it says here is so that when God desired to show more convincing to the heirs of the promise, that's you and I. So when God made this promise to Abraham, he was also making it to us so that we could be more strongly encouraged, that we could be convinced of God's promise towards us. So now we have two unchangeable things. That's what it says here. So by two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, and on top of that, he can't lie, which, which solidifies both of those things. We can be strongly encouraged to hold on to that promise. I have to imagine that as he was speaking to the Hebrews and he was basically chastising them for the immaturity, some of them might have been getting worried. And he wanted to make sure that, look, you got some growing to do, but it's not like you're getting kicked out of the kingdom these are some reasons why you should be convinced of your salvation you know that's one of the greatest things about christianity is that you can know that you're saved you can be certain you don't have to wonder every other religious system in the world you're just hoping you did enough to tip the scales in your in your favor the good news about christianity is we don't have scales if we did you would never measure up you would always no matter what you, and the reality is that's, uh, even though other religions, other systems of religion think that they're somehow tipping the scales, they're on the same scale as us, and you can't measure up. Jesus is the only way. He's the one that tips the scales in your favor, not because you did anything, but because he did everything and made that payment for you. But because of that, we can be certain, because God promised, and it has nothing to do with us. Everybody else is just hoping they did enough to satisfy the God that they serve. And the reality is is that all they had to do was receive that free gift of salvation. And then he goes on to say, by these two unchangeable things, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This fled for refuge is actually an interesting phrase that he uses right here. And what it's likely referring to is if you go take a look in the Old Testament, and you can read about it in Numbers 35 and also in Joshua chapter 2, in the Old Testament, they had cities of refuge. And basically, the the idea with the cities of refuge was is that if if somebody accidentally killed somebody else, they could flee to this city, and the the person that was slain, their family members, uh, would not be able to avenge their fallen family member, on the person that did it as long as it was actually an accident. So they would get there. He would, the, the guy If he accidentally killed somebody, manslaughter, he would go to the city of refuge. He would talk to the high priest. He would lay out his case. If the high priest agreed that it was an accident, it was an intentional murder, then he could stay in that city and he was protected from being avenged by the, the family of the person who died. As long as he stayed in that city, they weren't allowed to harm him. Now, if he left the city then all bets were off. But as long as he stayed in the city, and this lasted until the high priest died. Once the high priest died, then the man could go to his own own home, and he still wasn't allowed to be touched. But that's this idea of the city of refuge. And that's likely what the writer's referring to here is we who have fled for refuge in Christ. This is what the Bible exposition commentary said about it, and I thought it summed it up greatly. He said, We have fled to Jesus Christ. He is our eternal refuge. As our high priest, he will never die, and we have eternal salvation. No avenger can touch us, because he already died, has already died and arisen from the dead. When we seek refuge in him, we have eternal salvation. Nobody can come against us. Amen? And then he continues on in verses 19 through 20. And he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the first reason is that we have God's promise that we can be assured of our salvation. The second reason is he made an oath in addition to more further convince us. And the third reason that we can have assurance of our hope into the end is because of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who is the anchor of our soul. It says here that Jesus is the steadfast assurance, steadfast anchor of our soul. Jesus has become the high priest forever, and as such he's become the guarantor of a better covenant for you and me. All of us can rely on him to enter the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It says here he's the, the, the anchor, the, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, he's made a path for us to enter there. And this is an interesting thing because before Jesus, only the high priest could enter behind the curtain into the inner sanctuary. And he can only do it once a year. And he had to make sure that he was himself cleaned, and, and the, 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 he, he, they prayed and made sacrifices for the community as well, for the Jewish community, the people. And then when he went in there, they would actually tie a rope around his waist, because nobody else could go in there. And if something happened, they had to have a way to get him out. And the reality was, is if he wasn't clean when he went in there, when you go into the presence of God and you're not clean, you die. And the reason for this is because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. You can't have the two coexisting at the same time. Have you ever seen something like a bucket of half light and half dark? No, as soon as you, you shine a flashlight into the bucket, the light destroys all the darkness. It's just the reality of God being perfectly pure and holy that if you're not, you can't be in his presence. Which to me is one of the greatest proofs that we are made holy as soon as we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because he lives inside of us. If you weren't, he couldn't. But this inner sanctuary which was only open to the high priest once a year who had to have a rope tied around his waist just in case he didn't do something right and he died that they could pull him out. Jesus is the forerunner of us that we can enter this inner sanctuary anytime that we want. He is our forerunner, and he makes a way before us so that we can follow. This inner sanctuary, it represents the place, the presence of God among his people. It represents the heavenly sanctuary where God is enthroned in all of his glory, and because of Jesus, we can approach this throne with confidence. We can approach his throne without fear of trepidation. We can approach his throne without fear of being destroyed because Jesus has made us pure and holy. He's made the way for us. He was our forerunner on our behalf. He is our high priest. And because of that, we can speak to God face to face. Do you recognize what a privilege that was? The only person that could speak to God in the Old Testament were the prophets. Moses would go in and speak to God as to a friend. Nobody else did that. But how many of you know that Jesus calls us friend? How many know that we can speak to God face to face as a friend? We can stand before his throne without fear of anything because of what he did, because of our high priest, who is our forerunner, who made a way for us. And then over the next several chapters, after we just got that assurance of our hope to the end, because Jesus, our high priest, after the order of of Melchizedek, we're going to see a little bit about this king, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. In Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, it says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what we're going to do to kind of understand what is being talked about here is we're going to take a look at Psalms 110. Um, the, whole, the whole psalm talks about Melchizedek, or actually it talks about uh, God speaking to Jesus. This, so the whole psalm 110 is about Jesus. But in there, there's a portion we're going to read now where it talks about uh, Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Psalms 110, one through four, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. So this is David writing this down, and he's saying the Lord says to my Lord. And it seems obvious that it's God speaking to Jesus. Like I said, God is speaking to Jesus here when he's saying that you were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is something that we have to think about because it seems pretty important that he's from this order of Melchizedek, but we have to understand why this is is important, what the the purpose of this. So now what we're going to do is the writer of Hebrews is actually going to highlight what happens with this king Melchizedek in Genesis uh, chapter 14 so that we can understand what is meant by a priest forever. So first we understand that, that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. So what was happening in this time is Abraham was going up against a bunch of kings. The king of Elam was the, uh, was the main one that he was dealing with, but he had a bunch of kings that came with him, and, and Abraham went against these kings, and he was victorious in battle. And after all this was said and done, the, the king of Salem, Melchizedek came and, he, and he, uh, Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils, and then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's the uh, nutshell version of what happened. So we find out that this king Melchizedek, uh, he's the king of Salem. And Salem is uh, derived from the the Hebrew word Salom, and it just means that he's the king of peace. We also see that he is the king of righteousness as well, because Melchizedek, the name itself, it says here, by translation is king of righteousness. So we have two things. We have he's the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. His name is in title, actually anticipates the, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. He anticipates that Jesus is going to be the king of righteousness and the king of peace and reign forever. He's also noted to be a priest of the most high God. And this is an interesting thing, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. But the, the priests of, uh, high priests of God, where do they come from? The, the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi ain't around yet. (laughs) So where did this guy come from? Where did this this priest come from? But he's, he's noted to be a priest of the Most High God, and he, like I said, he blessed Abraham after he was victorious over the king of Elam and all the other kings that came alongside him. And after this happened, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We refer to it as the tithe, the tenth. And it's one of those things as a side note that shows that that this practice of giving a tenth came well before the law was ever written. Came well before, you know, people talk about uh, uh, Christians not having to to, to tithe. And, And I agree in some sense, Christians were not called to tithe. The truth is you're called to a whole lot more than that. My pastor used to say that uh, I, don't, I don't just want your money. I want your wife, your kids, your children, your house. I want everything to serve the kingdom of God. The purpose of your life is to serve the kingdom of God. But this idea of the tenth of the tithe came well before the law. And it was a practice that was put into place. And, I, and it's, it's one of the ways that just as Abraham acknowledged that the, the greatness of a Melchizedek, it's how we acknowledge the greatness of God. So. Abraham gave to Melchizedek because he represented God. But one of the most interesting things about Melchizedek is that in the record of Scripture, he's without father, he's without mother. He doesn't have any genealogy, he doesn't have a beginning of days or end of life, and that's what the author's pointing out here. No father, mother, genealogy, no beginning of days, he doesn't die, and in this he resembles the Son of God. Now this is, the reason why this is really important is that, Particularly in the Levitical priesthood, your family line was what it was all about. You couldn't be a priest unless you were in the Levitical priesthood. You had to know what your lineage was. You had to know what your genealogy was if you wanted to be a high priest of God. And you were only a high priest until you died. So it was important to know those things because that's the delineators of who you were and how long you were it. And if this was so important, why is it that this Melchizedek doesn't have any of this recorded? It's very interesting that they don't, none of this is recorded in the book of Genesis. And so what we see is that we have Melchizedek being a picture of Jesus. He's a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And he is unique because he has a never-ending priesthood. And then Psalm 110 is actually a picture of another king who would exercise a priesthood just like Melchizedek, a priest who was divinely appointed but not based on a specific lineage. And the writers of Hebrews declares that this is King Jesus. That's who we're talking about here. That's why, if you've ever read this stuff in here in the book of Hebrews, you're like, what is all this nonsense about Melchizedek? It doesn't make any sense to me. That's why it's so important you see, Jesus wasn't a high priest because he came from the Levitical line. Matter of fact, he wasn't in that lineage. But like Melchizedek, he was appointed directly by God. And Hebrews 7, 4, it says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So the greatness of a Melchizedek is actually uh, demonstrated in the fact that Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils of that battle, that mini-war that he just had, The greatness is demonstrated because Abraham was willing to give to him. Abraham acknowledged the authority of Melchizedek. And the writer's actually just making a super simple, logical argument. And that's greater is the one who receives the tithe or the donations, the spoils from another. And then we're going to see this argument continuing to be made forward as since Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then his priesthood must also be greater than any priesthood that That derives from Abraham's lineage. And you'll remember that the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews was to, to make the argument for the superiority of Jesus Christ. And this is just more part of that argument. In verses five through six, it says And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So the descendants of Levi were set apart so that they could be dedicated to serving God. That entire tribe, their whole purpose was to be priests, to serve God. Their jobs meant that they couldn't do other jobs like tending, tending livestock or, or tending fields. So you recall, as a result, they weren't actually given any land. They couldn't tend it. They had another job to do. They weren't given any land. Um, instead, God arranged for all the other tribes to give a portion of their increase to the Levites as part of the tithe. They collected tithes from their brothers, um, their fellow Jews, basically their equals. That's what he's saying here. They, they received tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, showing that they were the same. They had a, a job to do that was different than the others, but they were equal in God's eyes as far as that is concerned. So the gifts they received are as gifts from equals. But Melchizedek was different. One, he's not related to Levi. And this is obvious because we'd have to do some time shifting to make that work out. He had no connection to the priestly line and he wasn't related to Abraham with whom the priestly line eventually derives itself from. Yet Abraham still gave him a tenth of all. So the logic that's being described here is logically if Melchizedek is greater Than Abraham, then it follows that Melchizedek was greater than any of Abraham's descendants. Right? Because that's the way the line goes. It goes from Abraham, eventually gets to Levi, and then Aaron, who was the first high priest. And logically, if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then he has to be greater than all of his descendants as well. And the priests and the Levites, they owed their position to their lineage and they received their tithes as a provision of God's law. But Melchizedek, he stands unique because he was given the tithe not because of any provision of the law, but because Abraham recognized his greatness. And Melchizedek, in turn, acknowledged his superior position as he placed blessing upon Abraham then we'll go ahead and finish up in the last verses for today, 7 through 10. It says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the argument that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is beyond dispute, according to verse 7. It says it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if Abraham gave to Melchizedek, then Abraham is inferior to the superior Melchizedek. And then finally the author sums up some kind of just logical truths. First, he says that the Levitical priest would eventually die. He says that uh, tithes are received by mortal men. So the Levitical priests will eventually die. But Melchizedek, because scripture doesn't record his death, it's as if he lives on perpetually. And that's what he goes. But in the other case, by one of the whom it has testified that he lives. So we see a difference there. A priestly line that, that, that has to that dies off and has to be re-upped with every person beyond it. But now we have a priestly line, Melchizedek, who, as far as scripture records, lives forever. Because he's not recorded as dying, that means his priesthood is perpetual as well. And the author goes on to say that, that the Levites could even be said to be paying a tithe to Melchizedek themselves because they did it through Abraham because they're in their lineage down the way. And the purpose of this argument that he's making is just to, the reader would recognize the greatness of Melchizedek's priesthood. The fact that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And the reality was is that Melchizedek, as great as he was, was just a type and shadow of Jesus. Because the argument is that Jesus is superior than all of them. He came into the, the Melchizedek priesthood because it's, he was divinely appointed by God, and, it's, and it continues perpetually. He's our high priest forever. But Jesus is superior to even Melchizedek. And because of the greatness of Of jesus and his priesthood every single one of us can have confidence and assurance of hope to the very end because god doesn't lie because he made a promise he made an oath and because he sent his son to be our high priest we can know for sure that we are saved and we can have an assurance of hope until the end we don't have to wonder we don't have to be confused if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are saved. And that promise is for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.